0: Welcome to today's edition of What's the Story here on the People Chronicles. My name is Joe Painter, and our guest this morning is Carrie Roberts. Carrie has a background in law enforcement with a degree in sociology and criminal justice. She's a former Colorado Post-certified law enforcement officer. She also serves on the Speakers Bureau for LEAP, and that is Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. In addition, Carrie's on the National Retail Committee for Focus. Now, that's a nonprofit organization, uh, the Foundation of Cannabis Unified Standards. And they're a third-party source for the creation of cannabis standards and monitoring of the cannabis industry. In addition, Carrie has 13-plus years of entrepreneurial business experience under her bill with a background in strategic consulting, including business planning and strategy development, as well as expertise in marketing and business development and customer experience management. She began the first customer experience management company focused exclusively on the cannabis industry in 2014. And Carrie also works with uh, policymakers and the public on drug policy reform measures. And that is why she is joining us today in light of Pennsylvania's recent passage of the Medical Marijuana Act Act 16. As you know, it went into effect May 17th and the Department of Health has just a couple of months till November 17th to publish or start publishing temporary regulations. Well, that's a long introduction and Carrie, thank you for joining us. I appreciate you taking the time this morning. Thanks for having me, Joe. It's it's a brand new world, a new frontier so to speak. So you seemed like the perfect person to reach out to as all across the country, states and the public are looking to legalize cannabis for a whole variety of reasons. Um, Were you working with the state legislature in Pennsylvania at all as they were writing this piece of legislation?
1: Um, and maybe a little just a, a little bit of background to add to my background is that currently I work for um, an organization called Medicine Man Technologies, and we're a full service cannabis con- business consultancy. So we help clients in emerging markets such such as Pennsylvania um, be able to kind of implement and launch businesses in a in a pretty um, compliant and regulatory heavy industry a very capital-intensive industry um, by helping them kind of be able to deploy the same intellectual property the 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 standard operating procedures best practices the medicine man production companies which is a denver-based cannabis cultivation and dispensary operation what they've done so successfully over the last seven years that we help people be able to kind of replicate those same processes to mitigate the risk of coming into this space and in the process of doing that, we do work with state legislators and, and the legislative bodies. And, you know, we were fortunate enough to have gotten some of kind of to see some of the inside workings of how this bill, how Senate Bill 3 kind of went back and forth between the House and the Senate um, and how, how tweaks were made along the way. Um, and it was an absolutely fascinating process. I think that Pennsylvania, you know, as an organization, we've had the opportunity to go through a lot of state licensing application processes. So to be able to see kind of the, the iterative process as states continue to go through this and look at what are other states doing well, where are other states kind of what have, have faltering points been, um, and to see the, the Pennsylvania legislature look at that. And they've drafted a really solid policy, so that as an organization, when we 're looking at it we're excited about what what we see um, and kind of how they they've been able to
0: roll this um, this bill out. I have to say thank you for adding <laughs> the most important piece, which is your work with Medicine Man technologies and um, your work with uh, business persons and doctors and legislators in Pennsylvania, so I appreciate that. I apologize. Yeah, absolutely. Um, This has been a big win, um, a big milestone, a big sigh of relief for patients who are suffering from a variety of illnesses here in Pennsylvania, and it's been a long, um, long battle. So it's really interesting to hear you talk about Um, through your lens and the broader background of what other states have done and how they came about their legislation and say that this is a solid piece of legislation because it was hard fought. It absolutely was. Can you speak at all to the impact for patients since it is such a big fight and people are saying, yay, finally, what happens next for a patient? Um, Does that patient going to have to talk to their doctor and educate their doctor, so to speak. What's the process that unfolds for the patient? Um, I think that
1: there's a little bit of, of, uh, there are going to be a couple of things that happen. First, uh, maybe to just give you a little bit of background, that as states kind of deploy what their medical marijuana laws look like, they come up with a conditions list. And with that conditions list, that kind of specifies what kinds of medical conditions a patient must have in order to qualify for one of those medical marijuana cards. And in Pennsylvania, um, it's a a pretty extensive list. So there are 17 conditions on that list. So, you know, it covers patients, you know, who are suffering everything from, you know, cancer and HIV to ALS. Um, PTSD is part of your conditions list, which, you know, here in Colorado, we don't have that as part of our conditions list. But we're seeing more and more. You know, we lose 22 veterans a day to suicide. And, you know, the VA prescribes, prescribes, prescribes tons of medication where we're finding that cannabis can actually be a a great, you know, non-narcotic way or non-psychotropic medication to help our veterans through the trauma of PTSD. So you've got PTSD on your list. um, And you also have a chronic pain component, which is um, really critical for when marketplaces get deployed because chronic pain is such, um, such an issue in our country that, you know, we see that we've got a terrible opioid epidemic happening across our country, you know, probably the worst drug epidemic that we've ever had in, in the history of this nation, um, and it's because doctors are, are really over-prescribing Narcotic pain medication, opioid pain medication, and then that's what's kind of transferring into opioid addiction, and then finally, you know, kind of travels all the way down the path into um, heroin addiction. So to have chronic pain as an element on your conditions list is critically important. Uh, the next step, kind of in the process through the legislature, is that as these temporary regulations come out, you know, they're starting with the grower processor. Regulations. So we've seen a couple, of, you know, that's still in the very draft stages of those temporary temporary regs, which haven't been released to the public uh, yet. So working through that. But then the next step will be the creation of the regulations for practitioners. So these will be the doctors um, who have the ability to, and we, it's not a prescription. So since cannabis is still a Schedule One controlled narcotic under the Controlled Substances Act. A doctor can't write a, a prescription uh, for cannabis because that, that would be illegal. He'd loses, he or she would lose their license. So it would be a recommendation that they would write. So the next step kind of of this process is that there will be um, a regulatory phase of drafting of temporary regs for practitioners and what those physici- physicians must do to become a part of a registry that then would be able, have the ability to, um, to put forth those recommendations for their patients. And I think that Pennsylvania has also done a good job in that. I know that there are a lot of grassroots organizations working out there to educate practitioners ahead of time because, again, going back to states where it's not working all that well, we see that a lot of times it's, it's in that practitioner database. Either there aren't enough practitioners to write those recommendations or it, there's a very strict you know, doctor-patient relationship that has to exist. And if, you've, you know, if I've seen my primary care physician for the last 30 years, but he doesn't want to be on that registry, I have to transfer all of my records you know, over to a doctor who would be willing to make that recommendation. So a lot of times people don't make that transition um, so, you want, you know, we, we need to make sure that that process is not too onerous, that we don't have practitioners who are willing and able to participate. So, the next step of the process is, you know, going through those practitioner regulations and seeing what, um, you know, kind of what practitioners can and cannot do, uh, the kind of relationship that needs to exist between practitioner and their patient. what what that um, the registry, the database looks like, the kinds of information that they will be required to input into it. So we have some ideas about what that will look like, but when we're talking about kind of what's the next step in the process, it will be kind of the practitioner part and then what patients will have to do uh, to be able to get those those medical cards. Have
0: you noticed at all um, in other states or observed any resistance by practitioners to be a part of this registry for any reason. I mean, when you talk about it being an onerous um, issue, it it sounds like when the registry is built, um, it could be a little bit of education from the patient, maybe their own education to find out, does my doctor participate and do I need to transfer, as you mentioned.
1: Uh, yeah, so part of it will be that, you know, like in, in New York, there was a challenge with how that practitioner database worked because it, the database wasn't able to be publicized, so people don't know what doctors they can go to um, to be able to find a practitioner um, who would participate. So one of the things that Pennsylvania again, done a little bit differently is that they're requiring practitioners who are going to be on that registry to go through a four-hour course. Um, it will probably, it, you know, be a curriculum that the state of Pennsylvania creates to help start an educational process of practitioners and cannabis. So it'll be required, you know, as part of physicians becoming part of that registry that they go through that course. So, you know, the, the state needs to make sure that, again, that that process isn't too onerous, you know, you know, is it a free course? Is it something that physicians can do online so that they're not having to leave their practice uh, to go take this course? Can they get um, continuing education, you know, continuing medical education credits for it? So I think that those things will still need to be, you know, fully spelled out in those temporary regulations. But again, I think that it's something that Pennsylvania is doing right um, in trying to get those practitioners educated and on board and available for patients to be able to go out and seek out when when they need to go get those recommendations
0: So it sounds like we've done a job with the what ifs and putting a foundation or a framework into place but a lot remains to be done do you have any idea of a typical time frame in terms of turnover that all of this is in place and a patient there are dispensaries there are cultivation facilities and a pa- patient can actually then get on a um, medical cannabis registry. What's the time frame? Is it another year, two years?
1: Um, we're hoping that the it, you know the state's done a really good job of kind of fast tracking all this. So we hope that we they kind of stay on that trajectory. Um, and when our team kind of went through this first draft that we saw of of the temporary regs and looking at that, some of the time frames that they're allowing for you know the application process again they're they're kind of tearing out the process because you really need to get those grower processor licenses done first because it takes a while they're gonna have to start their stock you know their cannabis stock from seeds so in that process for a seed to germinate and then for them to figure out if it's a female plant or a male plant um, before they even start kind of a propagation of the crop to even be able to get medication to patients you know, it all starts with that, that grower processor piece of it. So they're starting with that piece first, then they'll go to the practitioner piece, then they'll go to the dispensary piece. So there are, there are, there are stages and there are steps so in reading through the regs, there are some things that we saw in there that said, you know, this could really push that time frame back. So of asking the f- department to maybe l- to to look at these things and say, do you really need that 30-day time period and another 60-day time period because does that push it out another six months? So it would be wonderful to have, you know, applications out for grower processors you know, by the end of this year, by beginning of 2017, to actually start that process so that then it can start putting into place the other pieces so that hopefully, you know, patients can have medication and the, the system can be up in 2017, you know, within next
0: year's time frame. That's not too bad considering all the work that remains to be done. John Collins has been named the uh, first director of the Office of Medical Marijuana here in the state of Pennsylvania. You talked about uh, regulations and licensing. I believe they've allowed for 25 cultivation facilities and 50 dispensaries. Have licenses been submitted? If not, you know, as a, a consultant with Medicine Man Technologies, how would one go about attaining one of those licenses and being part of this industry? Um, So you're
1: correct in the numbers so that there will be 25 grower processor licenses and the state of Pennsylvania, sometimes we see see states and you might have a grower license, they're calling them permits in in Pennsylvania instead of license, but a grower permit, a processor permit, and a dispensary permit. But since Pennsylvania is an oils-only market, um, so there will be no smokable flour allowed, It's combining that grower processor license into one, because whatever you grow, you're going to have to process and turn it into an oil, because it's an oils-only market. So there will be 25 of those grower processor licenses available. Those are the temporary regs that they're working on right now. Um, For anybody who wants to apply for one of those licenses, there's a $10,000 non-refundable application fee should you be one of those 25 people who are successful in attaining one of those licenses, there's a permit fee of $200,000. So that's submitted, and, you know, so it's, it's a very high um, permitting fee, and that you have to have verifiable capital of 200 or $2 million of verifiable capital um, that that you have at the ready, and when we're working with clients who are looking at those grower processor licenses, we help people through the pro forma development, the financial forecasting. You know, looking at what does you know what are all the components that go into building out um, a grower processor facility. How much money do you need to have in reserve for your capital burn? Because again, you're going to have five to six months of time that you're you don't have anything that you've got available to sell. So kind of what's that capital burn rate, so helping people through that. And, you know, it's, it's, it's in the five to $7 million range is what we're looking at. So it's a very capital-intensive um, section of the, of the industry to be in. Uh, there are also, like you mentioned, that there are 50 dispensary licenses available. And each, you know, if you were to attain one of those 50 licenses – you're allowed to operate up to three dispensary um, locations, so three separate locations that you can have if you have one of those licenses. So in that, um, the application fee is half of what it is for the cultivation processing. So it's a $5,000 fee, and then it's a $30,000 permit fee that you would then pay if you were to successfully Um, be awarded one of those permits and for that you have to show $150,000 in capital um, on deposit with a financial institution. So it's a little bit less capital intensive um, but there can also be more risks involved on the dispensary side of the operation um, because the dispensaries are more impacted with 280E which is a section of the Internal Revenue Tax Code which really negatively impacts dispensary operations I don't know if you want to
0: go into what 280E is, but it's... Uh, it's Does that, just from the sound of it, it sounds like the dispensary could be highly taxed? Highly taxed. Um, 280E makes it
1: so that an organization, um, this came out of a a tax court ruling from the 1980s, but anybody who quote-unquote traffics in a Schedule I controlled narcotic, which cannabis still is considered a schedule one, cannot take any business deductions other than cost of goods sold. So it makes it really challenging, you know, where in a normal business you can deduct your rent and your salaries and, and all things that normal businesses get to deduct. If you're a dispensary operator, you don't get to take any of those tax deductions. So sometimes dispensary operators are operating, you know, an effective 70% tax bracket. Um, So it, it, it makes that that part of of an organization challenging to work in.
0: This begs a a whole lot of questions. I I think first when you talk about the uh, grower processor licensing or permitting, as you said, and that kind of capital, must the grower processor entity or group or group of venture capitalists perhaps be Pennsylvania residents, or can people come from other states with maybe experience in other states into Pennsylvania and get one of those permits? Um, so Pennsylvania has not put any residency requirements on
1: those for uh, attaining those permits. So we do see a lot of states that do have, you know, you have to be a resident, you know, for at least two years or from before this certain date. Pennsylvania has not put any um, restrictions on residency. So there can be outside organizations, groups, individuals coming into the state of Pennsylvania to try to acquire one of those permits. And when that that question was posed uh, during a regulatory um, meeting a few months back, it was that you know they, they tried to weigh between should it be PA only, but people in Pennsylvania might not necessarily have the cannabis business experience
0: mm-hmm.
1: to be able to run those kinds of organizations. So trying to find the balance of... Are there people that can come in that have the capital? So that's the other thing that it does when you allow um, people from outside of the state, allows outside investment to come in, where other states have found that challenging when you when you don't open that up, that there's not outside investment capital that can come in to kind of jumpstart or help that market move. Um, so it's, it's trying to find that balance. Uh, you know, the, the clients that we as an organization, Medicine Man Technologies, that we're supporting, they're all PA residents. So the, the groups that, that we're currently supporting um, through this process are all people who are living, working, um, adding to their communities who are Pennsylvania residents are the groups that we're supporting um, in Pennsylvania,
0: well, that answers kind of the next question I was I was wondering. Um, with only 25 cultivation and 50 dispensary permits allowed, um, that's highly competitive. Uh, obviously, applications have already been filed, or you wouldn't be working with them. Um, have there been enough applications that the, the market is saturated at this point, or is it still possible? To apply and perhaps get a permit, or is it too late for that? I mean, you so av- are you working with at Medicine Man Technologies. So the applications aren't even created
1: yet. So nobody's turned in an application. So that's what kind of the stage that we're in right now. It's the crafting of the temporary regulations. So that will come out when those temporary regulations, um, you know, it's still kind of in the back and forth process as they're trying to get the the temporary regs out before the regulations come out and then after the regulations come out there will be a time frame so like I was saying I I think that we will start to see uh, you know we might see an application available for those grower processor licenses by the end of the year or early next year so nobody's filed an application there is no application that exists yet it's still working through the regulatory process so it's not too late for people to get started, but it's you know people really need, there's a lot that goes into uh, this process. Everything from finding you know putting together a community impact plan and making sure that the community that you're working within is accepting of your business, and then you are finding a location or figuring out how to build out you know a facility. So we help companies with that of, you know, whether it's the site sketch plans, maybe they've already got a building that they're thinking about of helping them do all the site plan drawings and um, working with their architectures, t- architects and uh, contractors of what that looks like when they build out the building because all of that becomes part of the application process of the application packet that you have to have your your sketch plans and you have to have your security plans and you have to have... A multitude of things that are part of the application, and applications can be hundreds of pages long when they're turned in to thousands of pages long uh, when they're mm. turned in. And every state's different in how
0: th- those applications are are structured. You just stepped right into the next area of impact uh, for this conversation. And again, we're talking with Carrie Roberts, a consultant with Medicine Man Technologies. And anybody listening right now and maybe considering or wondering uh, more about the feasibility of ascertaining an application and possibly a permit, how would they contact you for that consultation? Um, You know,
1: one way, If sometimes people don't want to just immediately pick up the phone and call. We've got a great website, a very robust website, that explains more about the services and, and the ways that we're able to help our clients Um, through this process, and that's just medicinemantechnologies.com. If people have specific questions, they can email us at info at com, or they're welcome to just pick up the phone, call our office. Um, That telephone number is 303-371-0387, and happy to have a conversation, you know, with with anybody that's considering this process and has questions about it you know, we're very familiar with what's happening in Pennsylvania and, and like we talked about, have been uh, involved in, in that process and, and being able to provide feedback to the Department of Health um, in the crafting of, of these
0: regulations. Well, thank you. I wanted to get that information out there at, at that point as we're talking about licensing. But if we could move to a community, say, because you mentioned you in this plan would need to know, is the community receptive? And that does beg the question, um, or, or it kind of sets the presupposition that a community can say, no, not in my backyard. Is that the case? Um, that is the case. So community buy-in is particu-
1: particularly important. Um, here in Colorado, we've got um, a very open market where we've got more, you know, cannabis companies in, in Colorado than we have. I read a report, more than um, Starbucks, McDonald's, and 7-Elevens combined. so it's a oh It's goodness. a hyper, yeah, hyper competitive marketplace. Um, but communities do have the opportunity to opt in or opt out. So, that, like the community, the county that I live in has a moratorium on it, and and cannabis companies are not allowed in my county. But the county right next door, you know, opens it, you know, welcomes it, wants it, um, and it's been very good for those communities. So. Let's part talk about of
0: that impact, impact for a community the impact specifically um, let's look at financial first and foremost is there an influx of tax money or or financial benefit because you have one of these that that money can be targeted for something else perhaps education or infrastructure in the community sure um, absolutely it's a
1: huge it's a huge draw of why uh, communities are welcoming to it is that you know that there's tax revenue that that comes from it. So the state of Colorado last year alone raised $135 million in taxes, and that money is earmarked for different things. So $40 million of that went back to public education. So I've got kids in our our public school system. So for me as a parent, um, you know, again, I have a law enforcement background, so there's a part of it we spend $47,000 a year to incarcerate one inmate in California, but just a little bit over $10,000 per public school student. So there's a part of it that I feel like our priorities are wrong. Um, so for me, it's nice to see that those tax dollars that are generated um, from cannabis are going back into public education. It's going back into substance abuse programs. It's going back into anti-bullying programs. So it's money that the, the state's able to allocate to other things uh, within those communities. There's Sometimes communities are, are fearful of of having um, maybe a dispensary in in their neighborhood. But we're finding in Colorado a lot of, you know they're fearful when it goes in, but they're finding that there's so much security. You know there are security components that go into this that that dispensary operations actually end up becoming a deterrent to crime because there there are security components all outside of the building. So a lot of times the buildings or the the, the neighboring businesses, if there are neighboring businesses around that community, are finding that they're safer because there's that added security component that goes along because it is regulated and it is controlled um... we found you know that the effects on crime in colorado with the legalization of cannabis is that felony crime is down five percent misdemeanor crime is down ten percent so we have not seen an influx of of crime because of it that you know that we're seeing jobs being created in the in communities that they serve tax revenue going back to those communities. Um, you know, we, we've got some really good stewards of the industry who are, you know, who have specific organization, you know, within their own organization that's a, maybe a nonprofit arm that goes out and does community cleanup or they've got community gardens. So that's part of, again, it, something that goes into the application process is what is your community impact plan um, Pennsylvania has uh, a diversity plan that's coming into play. So how are we making this a more inclusive industry? So how are we including minorities, women, veterans, disabled veterans? How do we pull that into it? And it's written into the temporary regulations uh, in Pennsylvania. So it's, it, again, it's something that we haven't seen other states do. So something that I, that I like seeing in, in these regulations of, of how do we make it an inclusive industry.
0: Has Pennsylvania determined at this juncture um, or targeted areas where tax revenues will be spent, for example, in education or in in, uh, community rebuilding, as as Colorado is is electing to do? Did we make those decisions?
1: Um, Not to my knowledge. It's not to say that it hasn't been made, but nothing that that I'm aware of right now. Has it been kind of um, allocated where certain money uh, will go to certain things?
0: So not earmarked just yet. How about law enforcement? And your background is in law enforcement. And I I want to combine law enforcement and employment. Um, What is the impact for employers if they have an employee who is, quote, unquote, under the influence or or using medical cannabis legally? Um, Must an employer accommodate that? Are there any uh, risks there? And how does law enforcement distinguish between, you know, what is what is the um, conundrum they're faced with or additional paperwork if they're doing their job and in one case it's legal and in another it's not?
1: Yeah, that's a challenging piece of it. The the employment piece, maybe I'll start there, is that most states are still, a you know, a right-to-work state. So it doesn't um, – organizations can still have drug policies. So if you have a policy of – Drug testing um, where you say that even if somebody is a medical patient and has a medical card, we've seen it in Colorado where people have fought that battle where they've, they've been you know, terminated from a, a job because of a failed drug test even though they have a medical marijuana card. Um, so I think you know, it's, it's kind of use it at your own risk because we're not, we're not there yet. So patients aren't always protected in consuming that even here in in this industry in Colorado we don't drug test employees but it, they are not allowed to consume on the job come to work intoxicated just like any other job they have to be capable and able to perform their jobs at high levels um, but here in you know in this particular industry um, you know if we were to drug test we probably wouldn't have a lot of employees to, to be able to choose from uh, but in you know in, in the regular public sector, uh, you're not protected from losing your job just because you have a, a medical marijuana card. Mm-hmm. From a law enforcement perspective, you know, I've talked to, you know, many law enforcement officials here, and I think the biggest challenge that we're facing right now, and it's not just with cannabis, it's it's with impaired driving. So of how, you know, with, with alcohol, they're very specific parameters that people have a certain blood alcohol level um, and then that's considered driving under the influence. Where with cannabis, they've set different parameters where, you know, it maybe it's 5 nanograms of THC per milliliter of blood or 10 nanograms of, of THC per milliliter of blood. But it doesn't necessarily translate the same way that it does with alcohol. So people metabolize cannabis differently where you know I might be a brand new consumer, and and five nanograms in my blood makes me feel very impaired to drive. Whereas somebody who consumes on a daily basis for medical reasons might have a built-up supply, even though they're not feeling any of the effects of it. Um, so it shows up differently on those blood tests. So I think that that's a challenge right now that um, law enforcement is is facing: is how do we make sure that if if this is a um, you know if if this is legal and we're allowing it, how do we make sure that we we keep people safe safe on the road so that's that's definitely um, a challenge and to your point, like here in Colorado, it's it's legal for both um, medical and adult use, so mm-hmm. how are we going to make that determination in Pennsylvania? when it's medical only, so people will have to have their medical cards on them. Most of the time you have to have the, the package that it was purchased in. It needs to remain in its childproof packaging because, again, it's product, public, and patient safety are kind of the main three P's um, that both law enforcement and the cannabis community at large are concerned about. So if you have a medical card the doctor has written a recommendation. You know, your the t- the label on the package of whatever it is that you have would have your name on it. Um, you know, where you purchased it from. So it needs to kind of remain in that in that packaging. So I think that there will be a way for for law enforcement to distinguish between
0: what is legal and what is not. So just to, it, it sounds like they they. they processes in place, a bit extra work for law enforcement, and the conundrum of there's not really a standard barometer for impairment with uh, cannabis like there is with alcohol. Correct. Sounds like that, that is the case. And, and finally, I, I find it interesting. I did look at um, some of the um, qualified medical conditions in, in the Pennsylvania law, and it talks about, as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, chronic pain um, but then it says, or if conventional therapeutic intervention and opiate therapy is contraindicated or ineffective, which almost sounds like, I'm not sure, you'd have to ask a lawyer, does that mean opiate therapy needs to be explored first? Um, actually, that's a really good question. And I don't know, um, I didn't read it that way, so I don't know. And I don't you know, know if I'm reading it correctly, um, but that would be disconcerting that we would have to go through the... Pharmaceutical process before you're allowed to prescribe the cannabis process.
1: It's actually a great question. So I know that um, sometimes it's it's hard to, and that was something that that we'd like to put forth to the Department of Health is how is chronic pain defined, um, mm-hmm. and and what kind of what kind of records or, or proof needs to be shown for that? But to be able to, you know, if it's written in there that you have to. Try the a route of opioid medication before going the cannabis route.
0: I think that, that that's bad policy in my opinion um, and i'm not sure that i mean I'm just reading that statement, and that could be interpreted a number of ways, and I'm not sure that that would be the correct interpretation, but it it raises the thought right cannabis is is uh, often been said oh it's the gateway drug, but the, in an earlier conversation uh, with you carrie it, it's being found to, to be an, an an exit drug, so to speak, from opiates. Yep. Can you speak to that? Yeah, and um, so
1: I actually lost my girlfriend to an overdose in 2004. So I'm I'm pretty passionate about um, addiction and treating addiction as um, it's a it's a medical issue. It's It's not necessarily a law enforcement issue. We focus too much on the morality of it instead of on the people side of it. And, you know, again, we've got an epidemic in this country of pill mill doctors who prescribe, prescribe, prescribe. They don't take time to get to know their patients or the underlying causes of what's bringing their patients to them. Doctors are short on time. You know, our medical system doesn't always work that well, so it's just easier to to give somebody a pill. But through that process, we've created this opioid epidemic um, where people are are transferring, you know, then their doctor cuts them off from those opioid medications. They start to have to purchase them on the street. Sometimes it can be as much as $80 per pill for like an OxyContin or something like that. People burn through their savings. And then that's when a dealer comes up and say, hey, I have something that gives you the same effect for you know five or ten dollars, and then that 's where people who never in their wildest dreams imagined that they would start using heroin start using heroin so the old you know in this the whole war on drugs and the just say no through all that arrow, we were taught that that cannabis is a gateway drug into harder drugs. but we have to remember that correlation does not equal causation that you know people are making saying that you know people who use cannabis, then become cocaine or heroin addicts. There are millions of people who've consumed cannabis who have never touched cocaine or heroin, never will. So it's, it, there's not that, that direct path that we've looked at before. But what we are finding is that people who are addicted to opioid medications, that we're finding that people are, have the ability to transfer out of that um, and be able to use cannabis effectively to transition out of an opioid dependency, that, that cannabis can be used very effectively for pain management. Um, we we see that in the state of Maine that they're looking at trying to add to their conditions list that cannabis can be used for a medical condition if you, for opioid or heroin addiction. So sure. being able to get people off of those narcotics Um, or opioid medications and use cannabis as a substitute to get them off of that path. So it it really truly can be a gateway drug out of harder drugs as opposed to a gateway drug into harder drugs.
0: And that is one big positive, or I should say maybe even another big positive for the legislation in Pennsylvania because it's my understanding that this state hopes to be the leader in studies regarding the medical benefit of cannabis, and there's a bit of a catch-22 because it's still a Schedule One controlled narcotic, and federal money is largely fund uh, yeah. that kind of research. But I know there are a number of universities um, that are um, delving into how can they lead this research, because, and again, it's money-driven. Years down the road, if they can ascertain the patent as a result of their research that will result in, in a large influx of money to those institutions.
1: Right. And uh, Pennsylvania, again, has been interesting in the way that, that they've written this into the, the regulations. It will be interesting to watch as it, as it continues to unfold. But they've got, you know, we, we talked earlier about the cultivation processing permits that were available, the dispensary permits that are available, but they also have something that we haven't seen, and it's a a clinical registrant designation. So they're talking about issuing eight clinical registrant uh, designations. So that would give somebody the ability to be a a fully vertically integrated business where they're able to grow, process, and dispense, but they need to have a contractual relationship with an academic clinical research center. Um, So you know, whether that's, you know, Temple, eh, any of the big universities within the Pennsylvania educational system, um, where that's written in there, um, it's a very, that one, the clinical registrant has to have a minimum of $15 million in capital. So that one is very capital intensive. You have to have a contractual relationship with an academic uh, research center Uh, There are a lot more kind of regulations that go into that vertically integrated health system that they're putting together. But it's interesting to see them move that way. It will also be interesting to see kind of, again, how it unfolds since universities, you know, a lot of their grants and and funding is federal funding of making sure that they don't put that funding at risk through this process. But we so desperately need... um, the research component of cannabis that it feels like that's what's missing. Uh, when it was posed to the DEA about rescheduling, you know, it came back about two weeks ago that the DEA has decided that they will not reschedule cannabis or deschedule cannabis. It remains a Schedule I controlled narcotic, but they did announce a policy change that's kind of designed to foster research by expanding the number of DEA-registered um, um, kind of research facilities? Re- research facilities. So right now it's the University of Mississippi is the only university that's authorized to produce r- kind of research grade cannabis. So it's one university in the United States and it's a federal contract that they have together, you know, they're under contract with NIDA, which is the National Institute of Drug Abuse. So they've kind of got a monopoly on that supply of cannabis for research. So it's been very hard in the past to be able to even kind of delve into that space to be able to do research. So the DEA's new policy will allow additional entities to apply to become registered with the DEA so that they can grow um, and distribute cannabis for FDA authorized research purposes. So there's a little crack in the door from the DEA, you know, rescheduling, descheduling did not happen, but hopefully, you know, that crack in the door does allow more room for research, which is so desperately needed in this space. So for Pennsylvania to have that that clinical registrant designation is interesting and it will just be, it'll be fascinating to, to
0: again, watch as it unfolds and, and to see what that looks like. And hats are in those rings, the, the Lehigh Valley Health Network, the, um, St. Luke's University Health Network, Temple University, and the Sydney Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University have all um, thrown their hat in the ring to get some of that research money and delve into the project. Carrie, it is a new frontier, very interesting, and I'm sure it will continue to unfold. I appreciate very much the work that you are doing at Medicine Man Technologies, and again, if you want to know more about that, go to MedicinemanTechnologies.com. You've been extraordinarily gracious with your time this morning. Carrie Roberts, thank you. Thank you, Joe. Have a good day. You too.